Good morning, everybody. I'm excited to have the chance to share with you. Adam is in Logansport this morning. He's sharing with Revolution Church, one of our partner churches in the New Thing Network, um, filling in for them. And so I get the opportunity to share um, with you this morning. We're in this sermon series that we're calling Spot the Lie, talking about we have an enemy and he is good at his job. And Satan, in his primary thing that he does is deceit. He tells us lies that gets us off track, that leads us um, just to get off the road. Um, Usually his lies are just these, you know, little grains of truth or something that feels truth. And he helps us to sink it in. We kind of look at it and it feels, looks like it's going to feel good or it, it feels like justice. It feels like something that is going to be good and, and we buy it into it and we get carried off. It's kind of like the, the, the lie that I'm really tempted to believe is just one cookie won't hurt, okay? Um, you can tell that's a lie because I go, yeah, one cookie won't hurt. One cookie becomes two and then three and then four and I won't say how far that goes, okay? And so we're, and so the, yeah, one cookie doesn't hurt, but the problem is where that goes, where that deception leads to is brokenness. And it's a lie and it gets us off track. But Satan's lies aren't about cookies. It's about destroying the work of the kingdom of God, destroying the work of God and what's happening. And the reality is that most of the worst things that have happened in Christianity can be traced back to false views of God, false understandings of God and who God is, his nature, who we are in our nature, and, and, and not getting sidetracked from what God's word teaches us about who God is, who we are, and his purpose for us. And so it's important that we can spot the lie, that we know the truth so that we can walk according to the truth and following Jesus who is the truth. So how do we spot the lie? Because it destroys and it distracts. And when we worship a false view of God, when, we're, when we get stuck into that false view of God, we're not worshiping the true God at that point. And it doesn't lead to life. It leads to brokenness and it leads to hurt. And this week, to me, like I said, is a stark reminder of where the lives of Satan, about who we are, who God is, where that unfortunately can lead to. We have an enemy and he is really good at his job. So what do we do? What are some of the lies? Last week, Adam started us off, and we're looking at the nature of God. And last week, he started by looking at, you know, God just wants me to be happy. If you didn't hear that, go back and listen to it. It was a great message. This week, we're going to be like part two about the nature of God. And we're going to look at two aspects of lies that we believe about God. And so number one, the first one we're going to talk about is God is like my earthly father. 
Okay, God is like my earthly father. Unlike last week, last week people really say, God just wants me to be happy. Um, this lie that God is like my earthly father is much more intuitive. It's much more habitual. How I live my life, how I come to God and how I interact with God is more about what I've learned about my interactions, learned from my own earthly father. And what quite often happens is our habits, our rhythms, and those unspoken things of how we relate to people, especially people in authority, a lot of those things are taught to us by our fathers and how we related and interacted with him. How we interact with our heavenly father mirrors often how we interact with our earthly father. It's not spoken it's not something usually that we go, oh yeah, it's just like that. But when we examine how we interact, how we approach God, there's so much kind of baggage, there's so much that we bring into our relationship, our expectations and kind of unspoken understandings. So God is like my earthly father. So if we, quite often, if we grow up with an earthly father who is somewhat distant, Okay, not necessarily, he may not be present, you know, maybe your dad wasn't present, but dad was there, but not really there. Um, just didn't interact much, we didn't talk much. And so for people who grow up in a family like that, a lot of them, they'd really develop this self-reliance. I figure it out on my own, okay? This, this, I'm just used to that. I, I know that I don't count on anybody else. And so when they come to, they believe, you know, they see God and as the heavenly father, they're like, okay. He's there, but there's still a true sense of, I'm still mostly just trying to figure this out on my own. And there's a distance that still happens with our Heavenly Father. For those who grew up in a very permissive family where dad just kind of let me do whatever I wanted, yeah, I'm gonna make mistakes. He mostly wants me to be happy, you know, just wants to avoid conflict. And we tend to, for people who have grown up in a very permissive household, they tend to have this same mindset of, well, God knows I make mistakes. He wants me to be happy and it's, and it's fine. I can, you know, he just likes me for me and that's it. And we fall into that same lie that Adam talked about last week. God just wants me to be happy. Maybe you grew up in a family where, you know, dad was somewhat strict or authoritative or maybe even controlling he had a very clear picture of right and wrong, do's and don'ts. There was, you know, very strict. There was expectations on, you know, how hard the grades that you would get, the school, how you participated in sports and, you know, how those sports would go um, and moral behavior. Pleasing dad meant doing what dad said. And a lot of our relationship with our fathers and that is either we do the right things to seek their approval. We work hard, we study hard, we play hard, and we do these things in order for God to show approval on us because that's how I earn my, my father, my dad's approval. Or that's how I avoided his wrath sometimes is what it was. And so people who have grown up in a family, a lot of times when, again, and with their heavenly father, why do we do good? Why do we, you know, check the boxes? And, and faith becomes very much about just doing good 
But not just doing good, but looking good, appearing good. That people have a very clear picture that everything's fine. When not everything is fine and somebody comes and asks you, how's it going? And your answer is always, I'm good, and you're not. Where does that come from? And we can carry that same pattern to where as long as we look good and we appear good, then God is going to be happy with me. And he will be pleased. And for some people, unfortunately, who have an abusive father, whether it be verbally, emotionally, even physically, for a lot of folks who dad is the one who broke my trust. He's the one who should have cared and protected and guided and he's the one who hurt me the most. For a lot of these folks who've grown up in a family like that, seeing God as their father is hard. They don't like to call God their father because they're like, I can't relate because I don't want him to be like my father. And a lot of these people who believe in Jesus, they're like, I like Jesus. I want Jesus. I know Jesus. That's all I need is I need Jesus, but I don't want God the Father. They'll never experience the fullness of what it means and the purpose of what Jesus came because of that brokenness. And so this lie that God is like my earthly father, it, it carries these lines, whether whatever it is. And it's not necessarily that you had a bad father, that your dad was bad. Because the reality is, every dad is broken. Every dad is human, who has failures, who has weaknesses. And we have a tendency to carry these patterns and these systems and these ways of thinking with us into our life. Why is it that when we have our own kids and you're like, I'm never going to do this, I'm never going to say this, and then all of a sudden one day you go, oh shoot, my dad just spoke, but he's not here. Where'd that come from? It's those unspoken patterns that we learn from our fathers. And so often we carry those things that we've learned into our relationship with God the Father and how we act and how we think and how we interact with him. We're distant. We think he just is permissive. We think he's very strict. Or sometimes we just don't want to interact with him. So if this is true, that, I mean, we carry these patterns with us, why does God call himself Father? Because I kind of look at that, you know, for me, the temptation is to ask this question, you know, why does God call himself father if we know that fatherhood inherently, because it's human beings, isn't going to be perfect? Why does he call himself father? And we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1. Why is it? Well, he is the father. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, starting there, and... Follow along with me, and let's read from the very beginning. You're going to notice this sermon series. We go back to Genesis a lot, and there's a reason for it. So Genesis 1:26. Then God said, 
Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit and seed in it. They will be yours for food. And all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy. Because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So we see in Genesis, so remember, we go back to this question. Why does God call himself father? And the reality is, it's because he is the father of all. He is the one who gave life. He is the creator. And just like for us, when we have our kids, the children that we bear, Okay, mom and dad, they are our image bearers. They tend to look a little bit like us. Okay, they learn our habits. God, we see in Genesis, is, is a similar story that's going on. Just like our children bear our image, God creates Adam and Eve, not just Adam, Adam and Eve in his image. They're his image bearers. And not only does he just give them life, but he's, he's not... He's setting things up. He's telling them, this is purpose. This is the task I have for you. And we see as he continues, he kind of gives the boundary and continue the story in chapter two. He kind of outlines, this is the work for you. This is the boundary. Don't do, if you do these, it's gonna cause pain. It's gonna cause death. And so stay here. And God is truly being the father to Adam and Eve. He is the actual first and literal father of all. He's not just trying to be like a father. He is the literal actual father. I think because God feels so different. He feels so out there. His presence and things, it's hard for us to really come to terms with this truth, with this reality. God is the original father. He is the original father, not just of Adam and Eve, but of each and every one of us. But because he's removed and, you know, he's out there, it feels like he's trying to be like a father to us and how he relates. It's not just because he created it all, but it's because God cares and his greatest desire 
is to be with you. He loves you and he created you to be with him. He is the father who loves you. And here's a very important truth. It's combating this lie, this lie that God is like my earthly father. The real truth is the essence of fatherhood is found in God, not human beings. This is the flip side of Satan's lie. The true essence of fatherhood is found in God, not human beings. Human beings are the image bearers of God. And so when we think of what a father should be, we are to look to God because he is the source of life. I mean, you think about what a good father is, the best kind of father. He is the source of life. And not just that he gave life, that he breathed life, but he also, his plan and his path that he has for his children is meant to lead to abundant life. Life full and flourishing is his goal. He provides for our needs. Everything, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. He gives us wisdom, his inspired word. It's to light our path, to make us live healthy lives in our relationships and how we live and work and interact in this world. It's meant for blessing, to guide us on the right path. But he lovingly corrects us when we get off the path. His Holy Spirit is meant to guide us and lead us and poke us when we start to stray. And more importantly, he always welcomes us back. He is the father who is watching for his children to return from afar. He always welcomes us back. The true essence of fatherhood is found in God, not human beings. See, Satan flips the truth. God is not like our earthly fathers. God is the actual father and our earthly fathers are meant to reflect him. And when we believe this lie that how I interact with my father it was my relationship with my dad was this way. This is the patterns. These are the habits that I learned and I carry that into my relationship with God. I'm starting from the wrong place. I have to recognize that the weaknesses, no matter how good your father is, I had a wonderful dad, truly. I'm like, I, got, I had one of the best fathers you could ever ask for. But I know he wasn't perfect. There are patterns and habits that I have to recognize that I've carried over into my relationship with my Heavenly Father. And it's been a process of learning. I don't have to seek the approval of God. He's already given it. He loves me because he created me and I'm his child. Satan flips this. We're meant to be image bearers of him so how do we, no matter where you have a tendency to fall into this lie, where I'm making this comparison or I have these unseen or unrecognized habits, 
rather than everybody having to spend five years of therapy of trying to figure out what this is, how, what do we do? What does God invite us into in order to combat this lie? What do we need to do? And the answer is we need to spend time communing with our Father. We need to spend time communing with our heavenly Father. Not just praying for things that, hey, God, can you change this? Hey, God, can you give me this? Oh, thanks, that was a nice gift, by the way. But spending time with our heavenly Father, just to spend time with our heavenly Father and to enjoy his presence, to enjoy his peace and his acceptance for you as you. For a lot of times, when we have our quiet time, when we, when we pray, our habit too often is more like a three-year-old. When I come to my dad and I've got my list of, I want this, I want this, I want this, and I want this. When's the last time you prayed to God and you just sat and you were quiet and recognized that he is there? His loving presence is there, and that's enough. I don't have to ask for anything. I don't have to ask him to change anything. Just to be still. And know he loves you. To be held and comforted by his love. When's the last time you read scripture and it wasn't to figure out what's the do's and don'ts. What should, you know, God, what do you want me to do today? What, how can I please you today? But it was simply to go, I want to learn about my Father. I want to know who you are. To sit with God, to read scripture in a way of listening to a story from your mom and dad or your grandma or grandpa and just say, I want to know what you were like before I existed. When's the last time you interacted with God where you're just with him and communing with him, learning who he is, experiencing his loving presence. Not to prove, not as a spiritual check mark for the day, but to truly rest. Because that was the point of day seven. So day six, God creates man. He creates Adam and Eve. He says, this is the job you know, be fruitful, multiply, rule over everything, cultivate this earth, do this. And day seven comes along, first day on the job. And what is Adam and Eve's first day on the job like? We're taking the day off. It's not an accident that their first day on the job was, we're not working today. We're spending today together. We don't earn God's approval. He gives it because of who we are. He loves us for who we are. Spend time communing with the Father. And that combats our lie of God is like our earthly father. The second line that we want to look at today kind of follows in line with this. The second one we want to talk about is God loves some people more than others. God loves some people more than others. We're tempted to believe that our proximity to God 
means God's love increases for me. The closer I am to God, the more God loves me. The more I follow God's rules and obey his commands, the more he loves me. So I have a question. Who grew up in a family with at least two kids? All right. Especially this next question, especially true if there's three or more. Um, How many of you claim that there was a favorite child? Uh Uh-huh. All right. How many of you know who that favorite child was? Uh Uh-huh. How many of you were that favorite child? I'll be honest. All right. That's what my brother and sister say at least. All right. Why do we do that? Why? I mean, it's, it can be, it's kind of funny, but, but why do we recognize this? Why are we tempted to point out? Why do we say so-and-so was the favorite child? In my family, it's because I was the most agreeable and I got in trouble the least, okay? Um, and I tell them, my brother and sister, it's like, well, I watched my sister, I watched my brother, and I said, well, I'm not going to do that, and I'm not going to do that because I don't want to get in trouble. So my nickname was the golden child growing up. They still call me that today, by the way. But within our own families, it's not unusual that we recognize, oh, so-and-so's the favorite. And we make these distinctions, we make these rankings. What is it based off of? It's based off of who's closest, who's the best, who obeys the most, Who listens? Our human nature loves to make distinguishes comparisons amongst ourselves. We subconsciously compare ourselves to the people in the room everywhere we go. It's a part of our human nature. It's a part of what we do and how we operate. But it, it's a survival instinct that we do. We're, we're kind of seeing, is there any risks, you know, in the room? And it's a part of our human nature that we've got to recognize and bring under control. Because when we try to see this and we look, we also start asking the question, how do I fit in? How do I get people to like me? How will people love me? And the truth is comparison. This is the danger. Comparison is a joy killer. Comparison is a joy killer and it warps our view of people's value and worth. And this natural thing that happens amongst people where we start to make categories do the, does their habits and their perceptions align with mine? I'm going to find myself in this group. And we just naturally start to drift into these categories, and we start to sift people into these categories. And what they can do for me or what they can provide for me, all of a sudden, they earn more love and an adoration. Comparison is a joy killer. It warps our view of people's love and worth. Satan loves to take this flaw in our human nature and tempt us to believe that God uses the same measuring tool for us. We've bought into this lie for a long time. You can look in the history of Israel. 
Israel bought into this lie. We are the chosen people. God chose to use the Israelite. Yes, he did. Does that mean he loved the Israelites more than he loved the world? Throughout the Old Testament, we see stories where God goes, look, I love the world too. The story of Jonah is all about God going, look, I love the people of Nineveh too. And they were the worst in the world in that day. Jonah was like, they don't deserve it. I'm like, I'm not going. They don't deserve it. And God says, you're going because I love them too. God doesn't love some people more than others. And the problem is this comparison. When we fall into this trap of understanding and believing that God loves certain people more than others, usually we find ourselves primarily in two categories. If I failed and I recognize my failure, a lot of people identify themselves as I'm unlovable. This is why people fall into the trap of, you don't know what I've done. God could never love me. And their failure, everybody, everybody fails, but their failure becomes a defining mark and they cannot believe that anybody could love them, including their Heavenly Father. They feel defined by their past and they feel like they're bound up. And it feels true because a lot of times the same people feel rejected by society because of the comparisons that we make of one another. And they fall outside of the lines and into the margins. The converse is also true that if I believe God loves some people more than others, then sometimes I believe I'm special. God loves me because I'm close to God. He loves me more than others. And because I'm good, I should expect to receive extra blessings from God because of my proximity to him, because of my closeness. Now, we have to be careful. There is a truth. When I follow God's way, when I understand that God has a path that leads to abundant life, yes, when I follow his ways, it leads to this sense of blessing. But the problem is, often we cross over to, because I follow this, I deserve blessing. I deserve God to take care of me. I deserve that close parking spot because I'm one of God's chosen. We start to make these distinctions within even our own church families and our faith communities. And when somebody walks in who looks different, who sounds different, who thinks different, it's really hard to leave an open space for them. When I feel, when I have this mindset, I feel justified. But also we, that temptation that we're like the Pharisee and we pray the prayer, thank you for not making me like those people. Because we're special. And we're especially loved by God. Jesus' parable of the father and two sons shatters this lie completely obliterates it. The story, usually we say it's the story of the prodigal son, but it's really the story of a father and his two sons. If you want to read the full story in Luke chapter 15. The father, he has two sons. 
He has an older son and a younger son. The younger son comes to his father and says, hey, I want my inheritance. I wish wish you were dead. I want my money now. And I want to do with it what I want. And the father, he gives it to him. He gives him his inheritance. And the younger son, he goes off to a far country, leaves home, wild living, all kinds of things, and he squanders the money. A famine comes, hard times come, and he finds himself in the worst situation you could ever imagine. He's sitting in the mud with pigs, nothing to eat, and he comes to his senses and he goes, I know I have no right. I have no right to go back to my father's house, but gosh, even the servants in my father's house have it better than than I do, so I'm just going to go back. And I'm not even going to ask to be a son. I'm going to ask to simply, will you take me on as a servant? And so he gets his courage up, and he has his speech prepared, and he's going home. And when he's still really far off, his father sees him from afar. His father sees him from afar, and he runs to him, And in Luke 15, 20 through 24, this is what it says. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. The unlovable, the unforgivable has the courage to go home He is welcomed. He is loved, not as a servant. He wouldn't even let him finish his whole speech that he prepared. You're my son and you are home and we are going to celebrate because you are home. You're where you belong. And a big celebration, big party breaks out at the house and everybody's excited. All the servants are excited. Everybody's excited. And his older brother gets home from working in the fields. He hears the party and he looks at his, one of the servants. He goes, what is going on? The servant says, your brother who was, who left, who was lost, he's back and we're celebrating. And the older brother was like, nope. Nope. He has no right. He gave up that right when he wanted our father dead. And he rejected him and he left. Nope. He had his. He squandered it. And he stays outside, outside of the father's house. So after a bit, the father comes out looking for his older son too. He comes out, 
Got to remember what verses I need to read. 29 through 32. Jesus says this. But he answered his father, look, all these years I have been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. The father, the son, the older brother refuses to go in. He refuses to go in to be in the presence because he's not worthy. The father comes out and what does he do? He invites the older brother in to home to celebrate. Because of the comparison, because of the disdain he has for his brother, because I'm the good one, he's the bad one, why are you celebrating him? Because of this, comparison is a joy killer. Comparison, when we make these distinctions between ourselves, it warps our sense of value and worth of those who are lost. For those who God loves, it kills joy. Because what is the purpose? The father comes out and he goes, what are you doing? Come in and celebrate with me. Come in, be present with us. And because of comparison, he won't do it. Because he is special. I'm, you know, what are you doing for me? Why does he get the blessing and, and I don't get the blessing? It kills his joy and he misses the whole point. The father at this point didn't have one lost son, he had two. Because the point is to be with the father. To enjoy the presence of the father. And the father has to go out to his older son, who's the special, who's being like a Pharisee, and he has to go, look, don't miss the point. If you stay out here, you're not much different than your younger brother. Come in and enjoy the presence of the father. The lie that God loves some people more than others is a powerful lie of the enemy that has plagued the people of God for centuries and millennia. God loves each and every one, for God so loved the world. And the door is open to anyone who is ready and willing to walk in, no matter who it is. The truth is our relationship with God starts from a place of love, and that never changes. He is love. It's like a newborn baby. It's not a choice. It's not a choice, is it? When that baby is born, that baby hasn't done nothing to earn your love. In fact, it caused a lot of pain. Okay, for nine months, not just one day, for nine months, it caused a lot of pain. But when that child is born, do you have a choice to love that child? No, because that child is born out of your love. It is the object of your love and it's your child. 
parents with teenagers and older kids and grown adults, no matter what they do, you still love them. And they should always be welcomed back, no matter what. And this is who our God is. He doesn't make distinctions. Nobody should have the door closed on them. God loves no one more than anyone else. So how do we combat this lie in ourselves? How, because the truth is, we may come, this is one of the truths, powerful truths that's hard. We may come as the younger brother, but the longer we stay at home, the easier it is to become like the older brother and to start making distinctions. We have to be careful. So how do we combat the lie? Number one, ask yourself, who makes your naughty list? We think God has a naughty and nice list like Santa Claus, but he has one list. Y'all are on the naughty list, okay? Everybody has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But he loves us and he gave us Jesus anyway, and everybody's invited. But who's on your naughty list? Who do you have a hard time loving? For whatever reason, this is a hard, this is a really, this isn't a lighthearted question. Who do you have a hard time loving? Whether it's people who are judgmental, whether it's other people who are different, whatever that looks like. And then the second step is really identify that. Do something kind. Share some encouraging words with those people. This is how we learn. This is how we change. This is how the church becomes the salt and light that the world desperately needs. Is when we start doing these really hard things. The people who make our naughty list, the people who we would rather avoid, is we allow the Spirit to guide us and lead us in to engage with them with love and understand that God loves them just as much. This is how the reality of the kingdom of God breaks into our world and we see change. Be salt, be light. And sometimes that requires doing really hard things. Spend time with God, commune with your father, get to know he is. But even the hard people Learn to love them, and that's how we become salt and light. Let's pray. Father God, this morning, we recognize that you are good, you are holy, and you are loving. And Father, we pray this morning that as your children, that you would help us to be good, kind, and loving to a world that needs it, the world that needs to know we don't make distinctions, that a world that knows that everybody is loved, especially a world that we are reminded of brokenness, that your church stands for good, your church stands with love, that the people in this world would know it's because of Jesus. And so I pray that your spirit would move powerfully in us and guide us.
In Christ's name, amen.